Hello and welcome to Banter on the Parkway. This week we're going to take a look at Xavier picking up two big Q1 road wins, how close that takes them to being off the bubble, and how the emergence of Kiki Tandy and the dominance of Tyreek Jones are driving the team. We'll talk about all that, plus venues we'd love to see a game and snacks to eat while you're watching Xavier and freaking out. All that and more coming up on Banter on the Parkway. Hello and welcome to Banter on the Parkway, and we join you after Xavier has had a successful week pulling back to a place where they can at least see the bubble. This week I am joined, as usual, by Joel. Joel, you were in northern Ohio yesterday. What did you think of our nearly patented 31-degree rain? It's beautiful. It's like if the worst parts of February were just all of February, and I loved it. By loved it, I mean hated it. I mean, the worst parts of February are all of February, because I think we've discussed this before. It is the worst. We've also got Braden back on board with us this week as Brian travels through a storm to get back home. Braden, how are you doing this week? I am doing very well, thank you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Any stitches coming out? or? Yeah, I get my stitches out of my shoulder on Friday, and then I will be rehabbing for the foreseeable future. That's always Wait, this whole time when when Brian's been asking us how we're doing, are we supposed to ask him how how he's doing too? I was just being courteous. Oh, oh I have not been. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody who's had an injury, and that'll probably be a lot of the people listening, can tell you that rehab is as bad as they tell you it is. Things that are not going badly right now, though, uh, are the Xavier Musketeers. Huge win on Saturday, 74-62 over Seton Hall. Uh, that win was keyed by Tyreek Jones. That's going to be a familiar theme for the podcast. He had 19, 18, only one assist. Not sure what was up with Tyreek's ball distribution against Seton Hall uh, and four blocks. But other guys did play, which you may not have noticed from the press coverage, and Tyreek thoroughly earned all that he got. Najee Marshall also had 19. Kiki Tandy had 14. That was Xavier's first uh I guess you could call it signature win. Uh, Braden, what, if anything, did you take away from that game that we haven't already mentioned? Uh, Just that this team's not going away. Um, We've seen them fight hard in a lot of different games, but not really get a whole lot out of it. Uh, So just the fact that they, that we've now seen that they can dig in and get a result against one of the toughest teams in the country um, is very encouraging and something we really hadn't seen from them. Uh, through Big East play so far. So that was my big uh, takeaway there. Yeah, we've done a lot of fighting back in games without like that actually mattering for anything. So it was nice to punch with somebody and then win it. Then we went Tuesday, yesterday night over to DePaul in Chicago. Went from an 11 a.m. tip to a 9 p.m. tip. Neither of those are great. Uh, Xavier got another big win. This one was keyed by 7 of 11 from three-point land to start the game and Tyreek Jones. Tyreek did step it up and had two assists in this game to go along with his 12 points, another 18 rebounds and another three blocks. Uh, Zach Fremantle struggled, but fellow freshman Kiki Tandy had 12 again and really looked good. Joel, you messaged us after the game that you think Kiki might be developing into a player. What is it that you've seen out of him the last couple games? He looks like he's getting up to speed. Uh, Travis Steele talked in a presser, uh, I can't remember which game it was after, but basically said, especially for a freshman, 
those first cupcake games and he churched it up. He didn't call it that, but basically the bye games at the start of the year are so important for freshmen because even the jump from, you know, high school to Jacksonville state or whatever is jarring for a lot of these guys because they're playing at a level they've never played at before. And Kiki basically uh, didn't get a chance to acclimate to the pool as it were, he was just like Hobbs. He jumped right in. And it was a little <laughs> bit cold for him at first. And, man, he looks like uh, the game's slowing down for him a little bit. What I've really liked about him was he just doesn't look like he's overawed by anybody. And, you know, Miles Powell came wandering out late in the, the Seton Hall game and looked like he thought he'd Hector Kiki into maybe a, a lazy pass. And it didn't appear that it had crossed his mind that Kiki would just run right past him and then challenge the big guy at the rim. And he did exactly that and drew a big foul. <clears throat> and to me, that was emblematic of where Kiki has gotten to since he first got healthy. He, you know, wasn't afraid of maybe the best guard in the Big East. And Miles Powell doesn't make his bones on the defensive end, but he's no slouch. And he wasn't afraid of the best shot blocker in the Big East. He took it right at him, too. And he's playing like he doesn't believe that there's anybody who can stop him from doing what he wants. And recent evidence has indicated that maybe that's the case. He's also shooting over 40% from behind the arc in Big East play. I don't have to tell you guys how big a factor – Uh, three-point shooting is going to be and how far this team's able to go. To have a guy who can shoot it consistently the way Kiki has is potentially huge. And 40% would also be really good free throw shooting percentage. I don't think we can overstate that. So that That is... What does the nation's leader shoot from the line? Like 48? That seems ridiculous. He makes more or almost one out of every two. Can't, Can't be. So that's two big wins. Um, last week, Wednesday night, we all watched Xavier not be able to put away a Marquette team without Marcus Howard in double overtime. At that point in time, if you start Torvik's team cast projections, which I think is probably the best way of looking at the field right now, Xavier had a less than 10% chance of making it into the tournament. You can kind of project it however you like, but that has obviously greatly increased this week. What changes do you guys think the team made that really got them back into a place where you can look at them and say, okay, this is a tournament team? I haven't seen a whole lot strategy-wise. Uh, I think the ball is moving a little bit more on offense. Uh, Najee still has an occasion and occasionally pounds it into the dirt a little bit, but for the most part uh, – you know, a little bit better ball movement has been helping. But mostly what I've seen is uh, the return to defensive intensity, especially on the glass. And, you know, again, not to make too much of one guy, but Tyreek Jones has been the leader there. And this team is not going to win by, you know, slapping together big offensive numbers and <clears throat> counting on 7 of 11 from behind the arc in any given half. But if they can get stops and end those with defensive rebounds, uh, they will just eventually grind other teams down like grist in a mill. So that's what I've seen the last, I don't know, couple of games from them anyway. Yeah, and you talk about the defensive rebound, Tyreek, the big story there. But against Seton Hall, 
Najee had six, and Scruggs and Carter each had four. And then against uh, DePaul, Scruggs had another seven, and Najee had seven. So, I mean, at least some other guys are trying to get involved because this really isn't a very good defensive rebounding team when you look at them. Um, offensive rebounding, they've been pretty decent all year, but that's mostly Tyreek again. Brayden, is there anything you're seeing that the team has changed? Joel mentioned the defense and ending possessions. Anything that you've seen that makes you think that they can continue to keep rolling like this? Well, in these past two wins, uh, they have gotten going very early. So uh, it was a couple weeks ago, I believe, that they played Creighton, and they scored one point uh, before the first media timeout. And in both of these games, um, they have come out smoking on the offensive end. And what that kind of says to me is that if they can play uh, pretty good offense, slightly above average or even below average like they did against DePaul, um, the, the defense is going enough that that is going to be enough to see them across the line. So when they come out and they are putting on these big runs, that, that probably isn't going to last. But if they can consistently get up around uh, 70 points a game, uh, the defense has been good enough that that will win them games. So we can quote you on you don't think – Xavier's going to be able to continue to jump to 30 to 6 leads on top 10 teams in the nation. Uh, well, yes, you can count me on that. I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty okay. confident in that one. Coward. It's not a super bold. <laughs> okay, so we're circle, looking at... Circle February 22nd on your calendar when Xavier proves Braden wrong by going out 30 to 6 against Villanova. You heard I, it here I, first. I would love it if they did. So Only possible curveball is if Nova's no longer in the top 10. Yeah, that's that was the issue I see with that prediction as well. <laughs> so I mentioned it before, but if you look at Mark Torvik's projection system now, you don't stream anything else out. You just leave it as it is. End the season. Xavier has a 68.8% chance of being in. So unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess depending on how you look at it, and all somehow, there is a lot of basketball still to be played. What games do you think Xavier has to win to hang on to that? Or conversely, and I'll start on this one, must not lose. And that, I think, is their next game coming up. They cannot lose to Providence at home and hang on to that. If you take, change nothing else, projecting it out ahead, Xavier's chances of, taking the tournament, of making the tournament, depending on how you see him doing the rest of the year and projecting out the rest of the big between the 6 and 12% whack if they lose to Providence. Any other must-not-lose or must-win games jumping out at you guys? I think against the uh, lower teams in the conference, like Providence, uh, St. John's, Georgetown, and DePaul, those are the ones that we have to win. Um, they're not going to look like uh, big black marks on the record, but winning those would definitely give us momentum in the tougher games as well as um, just getting another one in the win column which is what we need right now. Uh, we just need to take care of business against the teams that we should be beating and uh, hope that we can snatch one away from, you know, Butler, Villanova. I'm going to push gonna... back on you a little bit there that I think Providence or DePaul loss at home would be a pretty serious black mark because I don't think they, I think they're going to have to kind of resonate when we get down to looking at the bubble that you're going to break it down individual games and if you lost to Providence at home that one could be troubling Joel you had something there yeah I'm gonna 
just jump ahead a little bit to our Twitter questions because TJ Barty hit us with one uh, somewhere on social media. I didn't write the script this week because I never do. Uh, asking if the team sweeps the bottom four of the Big East with the Seton Hall win, are they a lock for the dance? Uh, wins against Providence at St. At St. John's, DePaul at Georgetown, and at Providence. And that kind of speaks to what we're talking about here because that puts Xavier, even if they lose everything else, win those five games. They're nine and nine in the conference. They have one win out, or I'm sorry, one loss outside of Q1. And they would have a, a combined total. Let me pull up the, the Warren Nolan here. Uh, that would add five more Q1 or Q2 wins. Uh, depending on St. John's is right at the line. We're playing them on the road is going to be a one or a two, depending on how they finish the season. Uh, Providence and DePaul uh, have a little more wiggle room. But basically, we would be looking at 11 wins in the top two quadrants and only one loss outside of Q1. Drop one of those games, and we still have 10 wins in the Q1 or two and only two losses outside of the Q1. If we do that and pick up one win in the Big East tournament, I think we're in then too. So uh, to me, and, you know, I know it seems rough because we just came off of that, that long losing streak, but I don't think you can circle one game and say we can't afford to drop this one. I think what they, they need to do is target something like nine and nine or even eight and 10 in the conference and not show up and immediately lose in the big East tournament. And they're in, uh, we have this conversation every year. Some pundit is going to come out and say, uh, this is a historically weak bubble, or this is the worst bubble ever or whatever, you know, their editor tells them to, to title it. So they get some clicks, but realistically it's always kind of been a struggle for the, the committee to get 68 teams and you are going to end up with some teams that have some pretty iffy resumes. And if X has 11 quadrant one or two wins and only one or two losses outside of top, top competition, I feel good about their chances on selection Sunday. I never feel good about our chances on selection Sunday. We have auto bids. I'm still nervous, but I understand what you mean there. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if there is a must win. You guys both mentioned like grabbing one. If you snatch that road win at Butler, obviously you're feeling really good then because that's that's a huge win along the lines of winning at St. Paul. I think even if you beat Nova at home or Butler at home, that's another one where you could just take the plane flag on if you handle business against the lower level teams. And uh, this is just wildly talking now after where we were a week ago because I'll be honest, I saw the Marquette loss, looked at seat all away on the schedule and thought, we are rollers. And DePaul really is no slouch. You could sit down and I saw somebody make this argument. You could sit down and make an argument that all 10 Big East teams have a decent chance of getting in still or could at least be considered. And that means that when you're losing double overtime games to Marquette without the best player, you don't look anywhere on the schedule and see a reprieve. I mean, no, you don't, but you also don't look on the schedule and see, you know, one of those 
you know, a bad URI team at home or I always like to bang on Fordham because they're the one that comes to mind. But this isn't, there's no like poison pill on this schedule left. And the flip side is the only game where you'd think, man, we really got to punch above our weight is that at Butler game. Because Nova and Butler are obviously great teams, but we've got them at home. And all of our road trips are against teams that you would either fancy Xavier's chances against or uh, teams that we've already beaten. So this, I mean, three and six in the conference obviously wasn't where we wanted to be, but at least the back end of the conference is loaded with, with wins that would look good, but aren't insurmountable. Like a trip to Seton Hall felt like right before we went there and beat them. Right. And we're up four and six after that game yesterday. And I think I might not have taken that coming in, you know, if you just said they'll be four and six, but looking at how Xavier's schedule lined up, that really wasn't unreasonable. We just get caught up. I especially get caught up in the emotion of every week, you know, we've won two in a row and I'm trying to figure out if we're going to land in the Cleveland pod and maybe actually get some time off work to get up there. Whereas last week I was trying to figure out, you know, exactly how the CPI worked, but you get sucked into that, and four and six is a horrible spot. Speaking of how Xavier's playing, David G. Puppet on Twitter, I don't know if he's a puppet for like an original G or how that works, but was there another team in the country that looked more impressive than Xavier did in the past four days? If they play like that the rest of the way, they won't just make the NCAAs, they'll win the NCAAs. That is a bold, bold take, Dave. Easier said than done, though. Yes, they will, David G. Puppet. <laughs> okay. So clearly you want this. Go ahead. Okay. Over the past four days, uh, Xavier is unique in a couple different ways. Uh, One of those ways is that they've played two games. Not a lot of teams have done that. Obviously, they've won them both. They've looked fantastic. Uh, Bart Torvik on his self-named site, barttorvik.com, lets you break down the stats pretty much any way you want to. Among teams who have played two games in the past four days, Xavier is clearly the best. Baylor's second, and they're miles behind where X is. Uh, Yeah, pretty much over the last four days, Xavier um, could probably make the playoffs in the Eastern Conference of the NBA right now. I'm going to open it up just a hair more, uh, you know, just for context of the Bart Torvik's Barthag goes up to 1.00, and right now Xavier's is at 0.9913 over the last four days. So uh, they've been just about as good as a team could be. If you go back to uh, January 29th to get some major conference teams playing a couple of games, uh, you know, South Carolina had a good week, uh, but they, they didn't pick up a win as good as at Seton Hall. San Diego State's 2-0, and but San Diego State is something in O for the last forever, and they play in the Mountain West. Uh, LSU, Louisville, but who I want to look at is Penn State. They're the only other team that had a week that I think could even challenge Xavier's last four days. They won at Nebraska. Nebraska is uh, 126th in the Bart Torvik's rankings. They're kind of – I mean, not kind of. They're, they're worse than DePaul. They're worse than anybody Xavier has to play for the remainder of the season. 
until they get that 15 seed after they run the table and earn a two. Even with Samari Curtis? Uh, yeah, hard to believe. <laughs> but uh, then they went and beat Michigan State at Michigan State, which of all the wins that were even on the table for, for the past week, that might be the most impressive for somebody to have gone out and gotten. So um, Penn State might be the only other team that could even challenge Xavier over the past two games, whether it's been four days or a week or what have you. But uh, I'm with David G. Puppet. We, we are emotionally invested in the performance of 18 to 22-year-old strangers, so why not go all in? Xavier's been the best team in the nation over the last four days. I say we ignore everything that happened before that and just extrapolate those four days through forever and start ordering ourselves some T-shirts. Okay. Wow, we are just all over. We're hot taking it all over the place. That's our our thing. Now, Braden, I'll kick you one, and maybe you can kind of wind us back towards reality here. Kurt Percy, who's at 0-0-Havoc, says, Can Tyreek Jones keep up this pace, and should he be the favorite for the Carl Malone Award if he does? Uh, well, if he does, then yes. If he can get 18 rebounds in every game from here on in, it'd be kind of hard to deny him that honor. Um, but realistically, uh, he's probably not going to keep doing that. Um, but if you look at his stats so far this year, he's still averaging a double-double. So you can relatively expect him to get about 10 boards a game and at least 10 points a game. That's what a double-double means if you can't keep up. But... <laughs> Another hot take, but can he keep up this pace? Uh, probably not. But even if he doesn't, he's not necessarily um, going to have bad performances. It's not like he's uh, all of a sudden come out and he can rebound. We know he can rebound. He's just doing it at an incredible level right now. So even if he comes back down to 10 to 12 rebounds a game, uh, he is still putting in one heck of a shift for the team. So I, I just want to put throw out on Twitter about. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Brad. I was going to say you put so... something on Twitter about how many uh, rebounds he's getting. He's out rebounding most people, even when he's on the bench or something like that. Yeah. So he has played um, 66 on the last 80 minutes for Xavier and his 38 rebounds. I'm sorry. his 36 rebounds over that time. It's like 22% of all the missed shots. So he, even when he's on the bench, if you don't factor that time out in his rebounding percentage, he's pulling down more than one out of every five misses the whole time. If you factor in the fact that he's only played only, he's played 66 out of 80 minutes, he's rebounded about 27% of all shots that were missed while he's been on the court, which is, that's incredible. Those, those rebounds should be divided up over 10 guys and he has taken his share and another guy's share and most of a third guy's share. So one, everything that comes off the rim is Tyreek's right now. And two, I want to give a big shout to my boy, Kevin Marfo at Quinnipiac. Kevin, I know you're listening right now. Uh, his season total rebounding percentage is almost exactly what we have seen from Tyreek over the past two games. So oh if, you've been, if you've been impressed by what Tyreek is doing, the caveat being that I don't think Quinnipiac plays a lot of Big Ten or, I mean, Big East level competition there in the MAC. But if you've been impressed by what Tyreek has been doing, 
you should love store brand Tyreek Jones, who is Kevin Marfo. <laughs> Another fun fact about Kevin Marfo, he's already transferred once. He'll be eligible to grad transfer this year if he wants to. And Kevin, just so you know, Tyreek graduates this year too. So if you want to slide right into that role and bring your 73% free throw percentage with you, we'd be more than happy to have you at Whoa. X. 73? 73. Is that allowed? I to look it up. They must I, disallow some of those just because you – PEDs. <laughs> <laughs> You're not telling me he actually, like, pays attention. I sometimes wonder, like, what is going on when we're shooting free throws. Like, Tyreek, you could really see him, uh, to his credit, lock in at the end of that DePaul game. He was using all of his 10 seconds and taking his time and making sure he was going to get those free throws. He went 8 to 12 from the line. But then that makes the other guys look like they're just walking up there and kind of cavalierly flipping the ball at the rim like, what ifs? <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll probably get a stop. I'll just throw it up and let Tyreek go get it. Uh, that might be the plan, honestly, and I wouldn't necessarily say it's a bad one at this point. At Bubba Cody's Google broke, and he wants to know, what is the net after the DePaul game and is Providence a Q1 game? Um, Bubba Cody, sorry for clowning on you. The net after the DePaul game is 44. And to give you a little bit of context in a way that's really going to mean a lot to you, Cincinnati's net is 47, and they play in the AAC. So that is not going to keep getting better unless they do some really ridiculous things, whereas we've already laid out the case for uh, what, how Xavier can continue to improve on their net. That also just harkens back to our time in the A-10, where at this time of year, you just had to win, regardless of pretty much anything else. Unless you had Temple or UMass, or towards the end there, St. Louis, it needed to be a win. Uh, Providence is not a Q1 game, though. We also had another question, and this one, it's a toughie. I don't really know how I feel on it. Guys, is Ed Cooley a good coach? Is Ed Cooley a good coach? You know what? I don't think I'm necessarily qualified to answer this. I think a Twitter poll would be the most appropriate way to get some well-reasoned feedback on whether or not Ed Cooley is a good coach. I just want to wrap back around to the previous point for a second. Uh, No reason I know this off the top of my head, but Cincinnati and the AAC, their wins above bubble is minus 0.7. So... They are almost net buddies with Xavier, but like you pointed out, not a lot of resume opportunities in a mid-major conference like that. You hate to see it. We already talked about TJ Barty's question. It was a good one. Um, Yeah, if Xavier sweeps the bottom four of the Big East with that Seton Hall win, they should go dancing. And I don't, Braden, you don't remember the Atlantic 10 as well, but I can remember coming this time of year and looking for those big wins is something Xavier doesn't necessarily have to do now. How do you think to kind of jump off of TJ's idea here, how do you think this will affect Xavier's scheduling going forward? Because their schedule in the non-con wasn't great this year. And there was a little concern as we entered Big East play, like there really isn't a resume win out there. And now lo and behold, here we are with four wins in conference, sub 500 in conference, and talking about we should be confident, barring, of course, another collapse, that we're going to the tournament. So, how do you, does this going to change how Mario looks at the scheduling? Man, I don't, I think so. If, if so, it's going to be by degrees, not philosophically, because um, while I love our new conference dearly, we should also recognize that this is kind of a, 
on the upside of where we expect this conference to be in the, the non-conference, the big East just more or less blew the doors off of everybody. I mean, freaking DePaul was like 12 and one and was picking up big resume wins. So, I mean, we're, we're third in the Ken Palm right now as a conference goes, not as a team. I wouldn't be worried about the bubble, <laughs> but this has been kind of a, a, a high end performance in terms of not necessarily metrics, but actually results. And they, you know, the conference was excellent top to bottom in non-con play and that set it up. So the teams who are kind of middle to bottom already had, you know, built in traction to where we're looking at if X wins those, those last five games against the bottom part of the league, you know, at DePaul was a Q1 win at St. John's could be a Q1 win. If they pull it together at all down the stretch, you know, nobody is going to be Q3 home or away. So, you know, Mario might look at this and, and tweak things a little bit, but I think he did a really good job with this year's schedule. And I think, you know, people were maybe rightly a little bit concerned to be sitting with a, a gaudy record, but nothing to hang their hats on come conference play. But the bottom line is if Xavier continues to play in the big East and they continue to execute in the conference, they're going to give themselves every chance at being in the NCAA tournament, as long as they don't completely wet the bed in the non-con. That's a, that is an impressive answer, given that I just completely ambushed you with that question off script. But yeah, that I think Xavier is clearly, as you've very well laid out, set up here in the Big East to just make those adjustments. And of course, you got UConn coming in next year too, which hopefully right now they're 76th in the Ken Palm, hanging around there in that. Hopefully they add, you know, another chance for good wins. Michael Partush or Partush on Facebook said the only question to me is the question the team must ask. Will they continue to play with quick passes in motion and starting inside and out? Braden, did you see that difference in the offense in the last couple games? Uh, yes, absolutely. The start of both of those games when we got out to the big leads uh, came off of the the ball was not sticking to any one guy's hands. Um, there'd be times late in a shot clock where like Najee would attack or uh, Paul would have to go to the rim. But uh, throughout the game, they just looked like they were comfortable in their offense. No one guy really had to force too much. They were able to get post touches, kick out to Quentin Gooden, who is a sniper from three. Um, so when you've got guys on the floor that can space you out like that, um, it does make it a little bit easier. So they were getting inside and out. And if nothing else, they just looked a lot more comfortable than they had in the weeks prior where the offense just was not doing anything. I think who else kind of, uh, who got a real good angle on Xavier's new interior passing quick touches was uh, Paul Reed when Bryce Moore drove on him, uh, laid it down to, to Najee who, laid it back for Tyreek in an even better position. And Paul Reed got to turn and get a real good angle on Tyreek's main wrinkle as he punched it on him. Uh, that to me was uh, emblematic of what good ball movement can do, especially against one of the best shot blockers in the league. And he was completely neutralized until Tyreek was asking him if he had any feedback on that. And uh, he didn't. 
No, he did not. The whole way down the court, actually, Tyreek gave him plenty of opportunity to voice the opinion that he had been. Paul Reed had been punching down a little bit and talking smack at Bryce Moore, which I couldn't quite think, like, <laughs> why? <laughs> like, okay. I don't understand. Yeah. I thought Bryce Moore was excellent yesterday. Yeah. His offensive line doesn't reflect it. But when DePaul got rolling at the start of the second half, he absolutely clamped down on their outside shooting. Uh, yeah, I Coleman think Jalen Coleman lands. Exactly. Yeah. He thought Bryce Moore hit. was excellent too. Yeah. He had back-to-back threes and, I mean, was clearly feeling himself, which at home in college I have absolutely nothing against. If you want to pump up the crowd or – make three goggles or fly a three airplane or shoot a three bow and arrow or all the things that people do. I'm here for it. But Bryce Moore really took away that opportunity and that Coleman Lance was wearing him like a cape for about four minutes while Xavier remembered that there is actually a limit on the amount of time you could hold the ball without shooting it. Um, <laughs> that was a weird spot where the offense stagnated and that quick passing and motion just stopped. I don't know. Have you guys ever seen that happen before? Two out of three possessions, shot clock violations, and the team genuinely seemed to be fuddled by that. And it wasn't like we were in the action and just, I mean, almost got a shot off. It was like the kind of the basketball version of kneeling it out. And that was just a really time, really weird time to pick to do that because there were, you know, 18 minutes left in the game and we weren't ahead by 80. But it looked like we just, we're going like Villanova national championship number one style four corners going to bleed this clock. And then the stupid shot clock kept going off. And I'm like, gosh, dang it. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. I don't know to get back to Michael's question. We have come out looking well. It's almost reminded me of football teams that script plays at the start of games. Um, the motion has seemed to be a lot better to begin games. And then we start to ease away from it. But here in the last couple games, uh, it seems like we've kept it going better and the shooting has helped, though finishing out one of 14 behind the arc last night wasn't nearly as exciting as that 7-11 opener. But Coach Steele mentioned that when they went in the huddle, was talking to him about, isn't it fun to play like this? The ball's moving, it's not sticking, we're making quick passes. And I thought he did a nice job the last couple games to making adjustments and putting more on Coleman lands, I think kept the Paul out of it until whatever that was that happened in the last two minutes of the game where the somebody Freddy got kept. into settings. I, there's a vintage Brian move. He's not here to defend himself, but wait for somebody to go grab a quick drink, hop into the settings, turn fouls off and try to rip off a quick run before you realize that his guys are two hand shoving years all over the place <laughs> on super Nintendo. And Dan Mark threes from out of bounds because you guys won't go cover him. Yeah. I, to try to bring this back into something resembling reality for our listeners, uh, Coach Steele kind of took a beating on social media after the Creighton all-access game when people were like, oh, look at how much better Coach McDermott is, which was a weird turn because I had spent a lot of time listening about what a garbage coach Coach McDermott was until people actually got a – a, a glimpse at what he does but they're like he's just so much better than Travis Steele and maybe we should fire Travis Steele and hire an adult and I don't know sometimes I guess we forget that A this is Travis Steele's first head coaching job 
and B, he's still looking up at 40, like he's barely old enough to be eligible to receive your vote for president. If we cut bait on Travis Steele because of a couple rough Januaries, I think that is, you know, a decision that this program would regret for a long time because there's a reason he's an up and comer. And if it takes him five years to get to where we want him to be, which isn't preposterous, if it takes him eight years, then he's still basically a child and an excellent coach. And for, for as young as he is and as little actual head coaching experience as he has to see the things that he's doing and laying out, you know, it, sometimes it, it, it isn't fun to watch the, the process, but I, I am no less excited about Travis Steele than I was the day he was hired or at any point between. I think he's going to end up being a great coach. Well, it's a professional sports reaction to college basketball, essentially. Um, Because, you know, we're Cleveland Browns fans, and we changed our coach again this year. We'll change our coach again next year, and we'll change the GM again the year after that. And that's just how it works. But, you know, Chris Mack is the most successful coach in Xavier history, and in his third year, the team didn't make the tournament. So sometimes it takes a little bit. Mm -hmm. All right, the we have a couple last quick questions. One of these is really, really good. We'll start with excluding Cintas and what venue would you most like to see a game played? Braden, you're going to a game. It can't be at the Cintas Center. Where is it? Um, I'm going to go to Allen Fieldhouse uh, out in Kansas. So um, that is a very tough place to play. You're going to see a very loud crowd. You're probably going to see Kansas win since they usually do there. Um, but that is a Watching it on TV, it's always been uh, entertaining to watch uh, just to see how animated the crowd is, how loud that place gets, and how usually Kansas will pull something out to win at home court. So I am going with that one. Uh, I was also going to go with Allen Fieldhouse for all the reasons that Brandon mentioned, but also because my wife is from Kansas and is a huge Kansas fan. But just for... Uh, the sake of a little variety. Um, how about the pavilion? Mm. You know, the historic venue, it, it's not like a lot of places you're going to see now. You know, uh, another historic venue is Hinkle Fieldhouse. The only reason I would visit there is if I already had a road flare and some gasoline on me. <laughs> <laughs> but some a little bit different. Some a lot of games have been played in a completely different atmosphere. Uh, you know, it's fun to be someplace claustrophobic when it gets rocking. So, if Braden has already taken Allen Fieldhouse, I might go with the Pavilion. And I think I'm going to catch one at the Garden for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned the Pavilion about, like just the cachet that it brings with it to catch a game at MSG. I've always wanted to see a game there. A Big East final, especially one featuring Xavier, would be awesome to watch there. While we're catching those games and stressed <laughs> out, well, we mostly get stressed out during Xavier games, and I know that this is right in Joel's wheelhouse, so I'll start with you because you get the munchies during games, man. What is your favorite stress-eating snack while you watch? Okay, so a, a couple of mistakes people make when they're stress-eating – is either A, they I don't knew plan. There'd be some reasoning behind this. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Do you have a spreadsheet? We're going to, not anymore. It's intuitive. 
Either A, there's no plan, and they just hoover everything within reach, and that's how you end up like gnawing the arm off of one of your nephews or something. Or B, you think, what is my favorite snack? I'll eat that. What you need to consider in stress eating is size and texture. One of the, you don't want something that's just going to go right through your chompers easily because you want to you gnaw. And you want something that you can eat about 4,000 of rather than having to work on something. Anything you need, a knife, a fork, or a plate, immediately out. Send that through your garbage disposal or just eat it when you're rational. The top thing in my book for stress eating is baby carrots. The thing about stress eating baby carrots, especially during a, a tense game, is you'll never know how that game ends because the person you're watching with will stab you in the throat. So just... <laughs> Eat your baby carrots alone and get either peanut butter M&Ms or dots. Dots have a really good chew to them. They're going to let you work through a little bit of angst without chipping your teeth. And peanut butter M&Ms have a, a great variety of textures with the crunchy shell and then the chocolate that's going to melt in your mouth and not in your hand. And who doesn't like a peanut butter and chocolate combo? So if you want to stress eat, go with those two things. I promise you, you will not regret it. Braden, can you possibly add anything to that? Um, well, I'm just going to go with a different option. It, I did not put nearly as much thought into it as Noel clearly <laughs> has uh, over the years. Um, so I don't really eat a whole ton during a game. One thing I have been snacking on during games recently, though, is uh, mini rice cakes because uh, there's not too many calories in them. They're not too fatty. Um, you can plow through about a bag of them and have only 100 calories. So that's been my go-to. And other than that, I just have a tendency to chug water during stressful games. So about any time Xavier's playing, especially that Marquette game from last week, uh, I think I drank uh, about 120 ounces of water during that Good. game alone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was, as, soon, as soon as it was empty, I was filling it up and I was chugging. I don't know why. It's just my thing. So, uh, Brad, you got anything else to add? I don't snack during games because I make the mistakes that Joel talks not. about, and I just get, like, lost in the food. I, my wife made some caramel corn Rookie. before a game. I can't even remember which it was earlier this season, and at one point I looked down and I had eaten, like, a vat. I don't even know how else to describe it, of caramel corn. And about two hours later, my stomach really did not feel good. So during March Madness, I crush food like we all do. But during the games, oh, yeah. I usually try to have a cup of coffee or tea on hand because, yeah, otherwise I make rookie mistakes. I get too emotionally invested in the game, and pretty soon I'm, like, chewing on a pillow because I don't know what all's going <laughs> on. <laughs> so, all right, with that, Xavier plays again against Providence on Saturday in a game at home that they could desperately – used to not lose and then we'll have another chance for a great resume win next wednesday against butler we'll be back with you before that one one final thing we'd like to give our dad a shout out he's the reason that we are all xavier fans he received a lifetime achievement award from opra last night in a nice ceremony and got to get up and speak without notes which is definitely his favorite thing to do we'll leave you guys with that and we'll catch you again before butler